Amen. Good morning. It's good to worship together with you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Amos. Amos, near the end of the Old Testament, and the minor prophets, minor not because they're not important, minor because they're shorter than the major prophets. Amos is there. If you do not have a Bible, but you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. And if you do not know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people with us each week who are being introduced to the Bible. And so if you grab one of those Bibles, you can find where we're going to be on page 766 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks. Let's turn our attention now to the book of Amos. The title of the message today is taken from Amos chapter 4 and verse 4. We'll be doing something that we've been doing each week in Amos. We'll be uh, bouncing around throughout the book so that you can get a flavor for the kinds of things that are, are going on in the book. But before we get there, I actually want to jump ahead to the New Testament, to John's gospel, John's biography of Jesus. And I want to remind you of something that for many of us, if you've got a Bible background or a church background, I want to remind you of a story that is going to be very familiar to many of you. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from one region to another, and the Bible tells us that they decide to pass through the region of Samaria. And for us as modern-day readers, that doesn't sound uh, like anything. It's no different than passing through the region of Avondale or passing through Yuli or whatever. But in their day, and to the original readers, that would immediately have sparked something because the region of Samaria and the Samaritans were in that region were people that, that Jews did not get along with at all. Jews and Samaritans were not friendly with each other. But Jesus and his disciples decide to pass through the region of Samaria, and, and they're stopped somewhere, and the disciples are probably running errands of some kind, and Jesus finds himself at a well, next to a well, and there he meets someone that we know simply as the woman at the well. We never find out her name. Now, there were several things that made this conversation potentially scandalous, but the one that I want to highlight to you is the fact that she was a Samaritan woman and found herself surprised that Jesus, a Jew, would even engage her in conversation in the first place. It probably surprised her that he was even there in her territory and on her turf. And I like this woman because she's in this potentially awkward and difficult situation. And rather than trying to find a topic of conversation that would be less awkward, something about the weather, isn't it nice in Samaria, when was the last time you were here, she decides to bring up the main issue that made them dislike each other. She asked them a question, he asked Jesus a question about worship, a question that is of great concern for us. You've gathered here this morning for worship. We've been worshiping as we have, as we've been singing together. We are worshiping now as you are sitting under the preaching of the word. We have been worshiping as we have been praying. We have been worshiping as we have been corporately or as a group confessing our sins Worship is what you are gathered, we are gathered here to do. Worship is the topic of what we're going to be talking about in Amos today. And worship is what she wanted to discuss with Jesus. 
She says, our ancestors worshipped here on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. But she says that the Jews say that the only proper place of worship is Jerusalem. Okay, so like I said, this is already an awkward situation. And rather than making small talk about something that's less volatile, she chooses to just go straight for the jugular and talk about the thing that separates them most. And what she's referring to is a centuries-long conflict that has its roots and problems even in the book of Amos. It, it originated before that, but it's, it's part of the story of what we're going to be talking about in Amos today. Let me give you just a little bit of background on this. The nation of Israel, which was a, a coalition of the 12 tribes, uh, uh, eventually split ten, 10 tribes and 2 tribes. It split into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was led by a king named Jeroboam. The southern kingdom was led by a king named Rehoboam. Yes, they've got very similar names. Jeroboam and Rehoboam uh, lead. Jeroboam leads the northern kingdom, Rehoboam the southern kingdom. This all happens around 930, 931 B.C. And as Jeroboam has now, is now over this, this kingdom, this northern kingdom, he finds himself in a little bit of a predicament. Because the worship in Israel is centered in Jerusalem. And where's Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. And because Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, what that means is that Jeroboam's people are going to be regularly traveling into the southern kingdom to worship in Jerusalem for feast days and festival days and things like that. And that's going to have the effect of basically maintaining the ties between the kingdoms, which they don't want. We're, we're divided between northern and southern kingdom now. And so Jeroboam comes up with what he thinks is a great idea. He is going to innovate when it comes to the worship of the Lord. That's almost always a bad idea. So... In 1 Kings chapter 12, the Bible tells us, and we're not gonna, we don't have time to look at it, but it's verses 26 to 33 in 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam makes two golden calves, because that didn't go bad before, right? No problems with that. Uh, he makes two golden calves, and he says, behold, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, all right? We're already, at some, we're already in some bad territory with the innovation. He also sets up his own priesthood because there are, there, are, there are Levite priests that are the only people that are allowed to do the sacrifices and conduct the worship on behalf of the people in Jerusalem. And they live there, but, but we can't be using those people because they belong to the southern kingdom. So he makes his own priesthood. Not only does he make his own priesthood, but he makes his own alternate system. So if, if the feast days are this month, we're going to do ours a month earlier. And then the final innovation that he makes is in the area, the all-important area of location. Because we can't have ties between us and the southern kingdom. We don't want there to be any reason why you would ever have to go to that God-forsaken place. And so he sets up two cities that are centers of worship one of them is the city of Dan, and one of them is the city of Bethel, which is going to come up in 
Amos today. So, this alternate system of worship continues until about the year 722 B.C., when Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, deports everyone, brings deported people from other nations that they defeated into this area, and now we've got this big mix of religions and people and stuff, and that filters its way. It's, it's a whole complicated thing, and I don't even understand it all. But that filters its way through the centuries so that now Jesus finds himself at a well with a woman who's a Samaritan who can't believe that he's actually there because centuries of animosity have taken place. The false worship that Jeroboam set up continued to be an issue in the northern kingdom, which is why Amos was sent to confront them. And let me just point out the awkwardness of this. Amos is from the southern kingdom, and he has to go to the northern kingdom and confront them. And we'll, we'll see in another chapter later that one of the priests in the northern kingdom says, hey, why don't you go back to the southern kingdom and do that there since that's where you're from? And Amos is kind of like, believe me, I'd like to, uh, but God has sent me here to talk to you. And so here we go. But what, as we've been working our way through the book of Amos, we have seen in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, that, that Amos delivers this kind of opening indictment against God's people. And it, it contains the three themes of, of, of basically sinful activity, wrong way of living. He, he holds up a plumb line to, to them to show them that they're crooked. And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, then you remember what those three areas are. Uh, one of the things that he confronts them about is their materialism, their pursuit of prosperity. And then connected to their materialism and their pursuit of prosperity is their, is their injustice. If you work your way through the book of Amos, you see injustice in almost every chapter and almost every page. And Amos is sent to confront God's people about their unjust ways of living in a, in a variety of social arenas. But now, we're going to look at the third aspect of Amos' indictment against them, which was their false worship. Their false worship. And here's the question that we're going to ask this morning as we try to explore this a little bit. Why was God displeased with their worship? And in discovering the answers to those questions, I think this is going to be incredibly relevant for us and the way we worship. Why was God displeased with their worship? There are, th- there are basically three main reasons in the book. First, God was displeased with their worship because their worship was disobedient. Their worship was disobedience. There's going to be some obvious sarcasm here in the verse that we're going to read together in Amos chapter 4 and verse 4. Uh, verse four. If you're there, look at it with me. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. But this is what the Word of God says. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Now that verse wouldn't have made sense to us because Bethel is a holy place among God's people, but now we understand the background of that. Jeroboam has set up Bethel as a false center of worship. So, so Amos travels up to the northern kingdom and says, 
a message of God, hey, yeah, please, come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. The problem with the people here is, is not that they had failed, at least outwardly, to worship. They were a people who were actively engaged in worship. And the text that I just read explains to us and highlights for us several of the ways in which they are dedicated to worship. Look at it again. It says they, they, they bring their sacrifices every morning. They bring their tithes every three days. Verse 5 says they offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And not only do they offer the, the prescribed sacrifices, but the Old Testament law had, had set up a system of free will offerings where you could come and make a free will offering at any time when it wasn't on a feast or a sacrifice day. And they're doing all of that stuff. So the problem is not that they are failing to engage in worship. The problem was not a failure to worship. The problem was that their worship was disobedient. Bethel was a false center of worship. And it says here that their, their, uh, their um, sacrifices of thanksgiving, which include, which include leavened bread, led with, uh, bread that was allowed to to, to rise when it was supposed to be prescribed as unleavened bread. The very act of worship was a transgression in God's sight. So just think about that for a minute. The very act of worship was actually a transgression in God's sight. If we were to put this verse in the modern vernacular or try to translate this verse into our context, we might say something like, go ahead, come to church every week and sin. Come to church week in and week out and just keep on sinning. Go ahead, drop something in the offering box, even set up a recurring payment. Lift up your hands and worship. Take the Lord's Supper. Participate in corporate confession. Hear the word preached. Lift those hands high in worship. Go ahead and do it. But it could be a transgression. Because it, it is entirely possible to do the right things the wrong way. Now, let me be quick to say. In the New Testament... Our worship, the way we go about our worship, is far less prescribed. Because what we sometimes might be tempted to do with a passage like this is we think, okay, it's important to worship God the right way, and whatever are my preconceived notions about whatever the right way is, that's the thing everybody else ought to be doing. So we want to be really careful that we don't do that because 
While the Bible does give us principles for New Testament worship, it is not nearly prescribed as it is in the Old Testament, and there is a, a, a broad variety in the body of Christ through cultures and times that is something not only to be tolerated, but even perhaps to be celebrated. However, this principle is still true, and there are examples in the New Testament of this, one of which is incredibly relevant for us taking the Lord's Supper together this morning, which we're going to do at the end of the service today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't necessarily have to turn there unless you'd like to. It'll be on the screen behind me. But the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, which is crazy, that is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Yikes. Now, we don't, have, uh, we don't have time to pull apart all the pieces of this text here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But the Apostle Paul is writing a, lev- uh, a letter to the believers in Corinth. And one of the, he, has, he has a lot of problems with the believers in Corinth. They're doing a lot of things the wrong way. But one of them was their worship as it related to the way they, they, they uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper together. There's a specific contextual thing that's going on here when it talks about uh, uh, exa- a person examining himself and so eating of the bread and drinking of the cup the way we've heard that sometimes. And I've preached on this before, but I don't expect you to remember it. So I'll just briefly say it again. We sometimes have, have been in church traditions where that means you try to think of every sin that you've ever done before you take the Lord's Supper because if you don't remember all of them and you don't confess all of them, then you're drinking judgment. And that's not exactly what the text is saying. Now, uh, that's a, an important thing to do, to have a time of confession. But sometimes we believe that the strength of our, the, 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 the vibrancy of our participation depends upon the strength of our confession. And we're, we're entering into the Lord's Supper with a spirit of fear when the whole point of the Lord's Supper is for it to be a, a spirit of confidence. So let's talk about what's going on. And I've got to edit myself here because I can already see it going. What's going on here in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is there is a very specific thing that people were doing. When they were, when they were sharing the Lord's Supper together, it was... It was not the way we do it. It was around a a meal, often referred to as a love feast. And we know that oftentimes uh, there was a part of it done at the beginning, and then there was a part of it done at the end, and there was a full meal in between. But what was happening in our text, and you can go back and read this in 1 Corinthians 11, what was happening in the Corinthian church is that the more well-to-do people were gathering first. And they were, they were, uh, they had plenty of food, they had plenty to drink, and so they were basically having a feast or a party, and, and, then, they, and then those who were less well-to-do, the poor were coming in at the very end, and they were allowed to participate a little bit, but they didn't have anything to bring to the table. 
And, and the, the text, I don't, know if it's, it's, I don't know if it's saying this uh, uh, ironically or not. Maybe, I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for. But, but Paul basically says, don't you, he says, don't you have homes to eat in? And, and you're coming here and getting drunk at the table. So the very thing, listen to this, the very thing that the Lord's table was supposed to give a visible picture of, which is the unity of God's people and the equality of God's people, the very visible sign meant to show that was being misused to show the exact opposite. They were sharing the Lord's Supper together. They were worshiping. But they were worshiping in the wrong way. They were, doing, they were doing it in a way that God had not prescribed, that, that captured neither the spirit nor the letter of this gift that God had given them. They were destroying the unity that the supper was so, supposed to enforce. And so, Paul says, when you eat and drink, you are actually drinking a cup of judgment. Doesn't spare anything, does he? And it sounds similar to what Amos says, doesn't it? Please, come to Bethel. Worship. Transgress. Their worship was disobedient. God cares about the way he's worshipped. He doesn't just take whatever we happen to give him. He wants us as best we can to do things in a way that pleases him. And the clearest example of that is, in the New Testament, is I think the example that I gave you, which means that it is absolutely important that we have those things in mind, that we have the unity of the body of Christ, the equality that we each have in the body of Christ across all sorts of lines that might divide us. This is the time to show that that those things are not real here. And if we do that, if we refuse to do that, whether it be an outward rebellion or just an inward rebellion of, of our hearts, we are eating and drinking without discerning, understanding the point of the body of the Lord, and we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And the Bible tells us that people died because of that. So we're asking the question this morning, why was God displeased with their worship? But in the first place, their worship was disobedient. In the second place, God was displeased with their worship because their worship was hypocritical. Their worship was hypocritical. Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Look with me there if you're in Amos. Again, God's speaking through Amos. God just doesn't let up. He says, I hate, now let me put it another way, I despise your feasts. Now let me put it another way, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What do we already know 
about these people. We already know that these, these are a people who are in love with prosperity. They are a people who we've already seen have said, when will the Sabbath be over so we can get back to making money? When will this, when will this God-given feast, which allows us to step away from our work, step away from, from the need for commerce, the, con- the continual need to have more, when, when can we, this, this gift that God has given us so that we can just rest in Him, when can this rest thing be over so that we can get back to work, so that we can hustle harder, so that we can make and have and consume more? And not only were they, not only were they riddled with materialism, but because they were in such pursuit of prosperity, they were willing to go to any lengths to get it which meant that they were willing to trample, they were willing to oppress the poor, Amos says on numerous occasions. They were willing to use false balances and measurements so that they would have more to sell with less. They could make more money. They were able to turn justice aside at the gate when they were able to to do something towards the vulnerable of the population, when the vulnerable then came to the court systems to find justice, they were not able to find it. In fact, Amos rebukes them for their willingness to take bribes. It's a whole system that works. And the people that are the participants in this system then want to gather and feast in the name of the Lord. They want to sing songs. They want to raise those hands in worship. What does God say? I hate all that stuff. I hate everything you're doing. I take no delight in it. I won't accept it. I won't listen to it. How about you do this instead? Why don't you let justice roll down like waters? It's, it's not that God said acts of worship were unimportant. It's that, it's that God is, is confronting them with their hypocrisy in worship. You can't live like that And then walk in and do these activities and think that God's okay with it. God cares about what you do Monday through Saturday. This is not a punch card one day day out of the week. This is not the thing that I've got to give to God today and I'm good for another week. I can forget about him and then I can come back and I can just keep renewing my punch card each Sunday as I gather for worship. One of the things that the New Testament makes clear is that all of our lives are to be lived as an act of worship. I mean, that's what Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 tells us, isn't it? It tells us that we're supposed to, to lay out our lives as living sacrifices, which is our, our, our offer of our worship to God, which means that, that every interaction that we have, every dollar that we spend, every choice that we make, 
Every word that we say, every thought that we think, everything that drives us and motivates us, all of it is worship. It is all to be lived before the face of God. What we do here as we gather together on Sundays to worship as the people of God is is not supposed to be disconnected from our real lives. This is our real lives. This is your real life. It doesn't get any more real than this. And, and there is this living relationship between what happens on Thursday and what happens on Sunday, and they flow in and out of each other and are inextricably tied to one another. This is the way Jesus has called us to live. So no, it doesn't matter if you're here every week. It doesn't matter if you're here every time the doors are open. It doesn't matter if you've tithed. None of that stuff matters if there's no heart there. If we are, are pursuing the wrong things when we're outside of here, it would be better. Okay, here's a pastor telling you this, all right? It'd be better if you didn't give. That's how serious, that's how serious that you've got a pastor telling you, it'd be better if you didn't give. Because God says, I hate all of that. And I'm not going to put up with any of it. There's a third reason that God is displeased with their worship. I told you there's some tough stuff in Amos. Their worship was disobedient, their worship was hypocritical, and in the third place, their worship was idolatrous. Their worship was idolatrous. Look at verses 26 and 27 of Amos chapter 5. He says, you shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Cayune, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves... And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Those verses are, by Bible scholars, notoriously difficult to translate and not completely decided on the clarity of what is being referred to here. But the basic meaning is clear. The idolatry that Jeroboam had set up about 200 years earlier, was alive and well. Not only do we have calves that have led us out of Egypt that we can worship in these false centers of worship, but now we have a star god. Now we've got other idols that we can worship. Now we can make sure that we have all the bases covered with our own personal pantheon. Have it your way right away when it comes to God. And God says, well, you can get some packing materials together, and when you go into exile from Assyria, make sure that you pack the idols and take them with you. Because they are certainly helping. And in 50 years, just about 50 years, that's exactly what they would do. They would break out the bubble wrap, get some packing boxes, rent a U-Haul, and take their star god with them into captivity. Now, when we, when we think about this, this seems 
particularly heinous. A lot of things you can see people doing, but, but, but the idea of, of idolatry uh, and of bowing down before a, a, a pantheon of gods in, in God's place, even if it's not really God's place, but trying to make it God's place and then add other things to it. I mean, imagine us just, just having a, a day of worship here where we have other literal idols and, you know, you can pick and choose which one you want to worship today. Uh, we'll all be doing it together, but to different deities. I mean, that sounds particularly heinous. And we might be tempted to think, well, we would never take up worship of another god like that. But we do have our own idols. Our lives are filled with people, and goals, and things that we look to for purpose, for happiness, fulfillment, for meaning, for security. We have political idols. We have Jesus' words that you can't serve God and money. But we do serve the almighty dollar. We might as well be taking up our star god sometimes. God wants us to worship in a way that is actually free from idolatry, from a heart that says, there are no other gods before you. Based on what we've seen here in Amos then this morning, I want you just to reflect on this truth. God cares about the heart of worship. Let me say it even more specifically. God cares about your heart in worship. He cares about the heart that you bring to worship. He cares about the heart that I bring to worship. I don't want to scare us. God understands. He understood then. He understood then that we are weak. That we are so prone to idolatry. He understood that there is a mismatch between what we believe and what we do and what we act on. The fact that there is a gap between what we actually do versus what we believe is not necessarily hypocrisy, right? Sometimes it's weakness. Hypocrisy is the deliberate idea that I can, I can go through the motions and, and serve God and I can live for myself and my own gods all week. And that is what God is putting his finger on and saying, it would be better if you didn't. If we could bring this back full circle to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus very deftly sidesteps her question about the where of worship, which is interesting because there is a right answer, right? But Jesus sidesteps that question 
to, to get down at something that's more important and fundamental and central than the where, even though the where was important. Jesus turns the con- conversation from the location to the heart, which is why I'm saying that God cares about the heart that you bring to worship. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And we've been talking about, we're, we're going we're gonna to start a series later on this year, Lord willing, through the Gospel of John. So we'll be able to dig into the particulars of that passage a little bit more when we get there. Although it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while. But we'll get there. But what I, what I want to do this morning, because this has been cast in somewhat negative terms, I want us to look at it positively as God's people. I want you to see this positively as God's loved children. We could walk away and think, I'm scared to worship God. And if, if that's something that's in your heart, then I want to try to do a little bit. I, I think there are some, I think there's a, a good, healthy fear of the Lord that we ought to have. But that's not where God wants us to be. Worship, I want you to understand, worship is something that you were created for. You are a worshiping being. It is hardwired into the DNA of, of the person that you are. Not only are you a, a, a worshiping being, not only were you made to worship, but you were made to worship God. And in the worship of God, we find the deepest longings of our hearts satisfied. In the worship of God, we find the greatest fulfillment that we could have as human beings. In the worship of God, we find the most deepest rooted joy. A joy that's inexpressible, the Bible says, and full of glory. In worship, we find ourselves connected to the divine. Is that not what God has done in in sending His Son to rescue us and redeem us? The work of Christ is not just something to offer us forgiveness of sins. It does offer us forgiveness of sins, but then it connects us. It gives us communion with the divine because God the Father, through the work of Christ the Son, places God the Spirit in your heart, in your body. The Spirit dwells. So that you are being redeemed and transformed. So that you are living in a new way. So that it is not not drudgery for you to offer up your life as a living sacrifice of worship. It is in fact 
your deepest and most fulfilling and greatest joy to wake up each morning and lay your life down on the altar so that God can take with it and do what he will. You see, when we talk about worship that way, doesn't that sound like something you want to do? Doesn't that sound like something that you want to be a part of? Cannot you feel in your very depths of your being that that was something your soul was created for? And if you feel it, why would we want to do it with any other gods? Why would we want to live crosswise of God's purposes throughout the week? Worship from the heart is obedient, it's genuine, it's exclusive. So what we want to do is we want to ask God to help us bring that heart to the table this morning. Not in fear, but in confidence in the work of what Christ has done and that he is moving within us to make us more into what we were created for. If you're here with us this morning and you are not a Christian or you do not know what it means to be a Christian, then one of the things that we would ask for you, for you in this time is to not participate in this. And that may immediately trigger something in you that says, well, wait a minute, they're trying to exclude me. And I can assure you that we are not intentionally trying to exclude you. What we do want you to understand is that the Bible tells us that the Lord's Supper is something that Christians participate in because when you drink this cup and eat this bread, you are saying with your actions, I have a participation in the work of Christ. If that's you where you're not a Christian or you do not understand what it means to be a Christian, then, then we want you to think about something else during this time. We, we, want, we have something for you to do. Jesus asked the woman at the well for a drink of water. And he said, some, ended up having a conversation with her about living water that you can taste in which you will never thirst again. And she said, I'd like to be on that plan. Tell me about this. If you're here with us and, and you are not a Christian, perhaps you felt, even in, as I was speaking it this morning, that there is a longing in your soul that you are living out of step with God's purposes for what you were created for. And the Bible tells you that in your state right now, you are actually separated from God. You are in the desert. Or you're thirsty. But Jesus said that when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, he is like living water that once we have had a taste of it, we will never thirst again. So my request to you is to think about that while we share the Lord's Supper together this morning. Do you have the living water that truly satisfies the deepest longings of your soul?